All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the seminar. Uh, my name is Gary Pelser, and um, I'm hosting the first session, uh, which is why I'm up front now. And um, can I firstly say, yeah, apologies for those of you that had to drive further away to get parking. Oh, that's better now. Maybe you can hear me. Um, I was one of those who discovered the parking bay here was full and had to drive further, but looks like all of you here managed to find parking eventually. Maybe there's some outside still looking for parking, and hopefully they'll join us soon. It's good to see such a great turnout, so thank you to all of you for coming. Um, can I start off with firstly um, thanking our sponsors? Um, uh, you'll see various things on the uh, desk and on the table in front of you reminding you who the sponsors are, but they're Milliman, Sunlum, Score, and South African Actories Abroad. So thank you to them for sponsoring this event. And I want to thank, say thank you too to Nikki Patchett for arranging and organizing this event. Nikki does an amazing job every time organizing these things for us. So Nikki, thank you very much. For those of you that want to try um, risking your mobile devices on an unsecured Wi-Fi, Apparently, you can uh, switch on Wi-Fi and go into something called Mutual Hall, and it doesn't need a password. So uh, if you want to risk that, you're welcome to do so. I've also been told that the sessions will be recorded, and presumably that means that the recordings will be made available later if you wish to listen to any of them again. And I've also been told there's going to be a lucky draw later on today, so don't leave too early, and you don't want to miss that. Um, also a reminder, please, to turn off or to at the very least put your cell phones onto silent so they don't disturb the proceedings. And for those of you who haven't been here before, the bathrooms are out that way and in that far corner on behind you. Um, just want to check if there are any other notices I should have made. No, nope, that seems to be all the notices. So the first session today is on um, intergenerational smoothing. And um, for those of you who don't know what it is, you're about to find out. Um, and um, we're very privileged to have both Paul Trayans and Paul Lancaster here to present on different aspects of this topic. We will then also be opening up, um, hopefully there'll be enough time to open up to the floor for questions and comments. So as they are presenting, please do think about what questions or comments you would like to make. So we don't have to have a long period of silence after they've finished before we get the discussion going. Um, so to just tell you about Paul Trains, Paul Trains is currently a non-executive director on the boards of Old Mutual Emerging Markets, Old Mutual South Africa, Mutual and Federal, and Old Mutual Kenya. Um, he's also chairman of the risk committees for both Old Mutual Emerging Markets and um, Mutual and Federal. He's chairman of the committee for customer affairs, He's also a member of the audit committees on a number of those boards. Um, he previously was involved in actuarial consulting and consulting for PwC in Amsterdam. And before that, he was chief actuary for Southern Life. And he was also president of the Actuarial Society um, around the turn of the century. Paul Lancaster qualified as an actuary back in 1988. He moved to South Africa in 1993. He has worked in life insurance for his whole career specializing firstly in pensions and then later on in life assurance. And he was statutory actuary for Liberty from 2007 to 2014. And then he had the, uh, the privilege of retiring in 2014, 
So he says he's now enjoying a stress-free life, spending time in the bush photographing wildlife. So that's a topic you can ask him about in the break afterwards. I'm sure he'll be willing to tell you more about that. We will have two roving microphones available which can be used um, for comments from the floor. So if at the end of the two presentations you wish to make any comments or ask any questions, stick your hand up and a roving mic will make its way to you. And um, so I think without any further ado, let me hand over to Paul Lancaster to get the proceeding started. Thank you, Paul. Okay, thank you, Gary. Um, a lot of you may know that uh, Monday was Star Wars Day. Today, of course, is the return of the Sixth. <clears throat> if you don't listen to me, I'll tell you some more bad jokes. Um, okay, today we're going to talk about uh, the fairness of intergenerational smoothing. Um, this is a topical debate. Um, if one looks at where society has changed over the last few years with regard to what is perceived as fairness, throughout society, I think it is changing. And so this debate here is an important one as far as the life assurance industry is concerned as to what is fair now. Okay, so what are we talking about here? Are we really talking about what we regard as smooth bonus and conventional with profit policies? Now, for those of you who read the uh, pre-reading here, which was uh, sent out last, last week, it talked about uh, smooth bonus in particular, but uh, really the debate really applies to conventional with profits policies only. Uh, sorry, as well. Now, what we're talking about here is policies where there is an area of discretion over the allocation of the benefits. The discretion is held within the insurance company uh, and how that discretion is applied. Now, what is fairness? It's not something that can be easily defined, but there's a couple of things where we can uh, get some clues from. Now, firstly, um, it's being free from bias. If you think of bias might be, um, we'll give more to white people rather than black people. We're gonna give more to males rather than females. So it should be free from bias in the way which we deal with things. But it's the last two here which I really wanna talk about. The two legal terms here, procedural justice and distributive justice. So the first one talks about the appropriateness of the rules or procedures used to allocate goods or benefits or other outcomes. The second talks about the appropriateness of the distribution of the goods, benefits and other outcomes. Now they're subtly different. Now, what is important here? Firstly, uh, fairness does not mean equality. If you think of it, uh, uh, a different example would be the lottery. If it, if it was equality, everybody would get the same amount of money out of putting their money into the lottery, that no one would actually play it. That's equality. Fairness is you've got an equal chance of winning the million rounds. Rather than like beauty, fairness is in the eye of the beholder. Where you come from determines how you perceive fairness. Now, with this procedural justice and distributive justice, you need, in my view, both for, uh, to be in place for fairness to be defined, for, to apply. 
So how does these apply for uh, uh, life policies? Well, on procedural justice, we have, in 2006, uh, the FSB issued uh, Directive 147, which set out the rules that had to be um, uh, set out by each company as to how they were uh, dealing with, uh, with profit and smooth bonus business. It required a PPFM to be uh, published, uh, setting out how uh, DPP, discretionary participation policies, are treated. And it sets out the internal governance process and the considerations which are used when setting bonus rates. Now, in reviewing the PPFMs for uh, the main uh, live companies, they, to be fair, are pretty much all the same. Yes, there are subtle differences, but uh, broadly they are the same uh, across the uh, policies. In each of them, they set out a long-term target as what the uh, bonus stabilization reserve is going to be, and how they're going to get there. And in setting bonuses, there are generally three parties to the process. Firstly, there's management. Now, management generally are the ones who propose uh, bonuses, and they might be perceived as having a view that they want to have as high bonuses as possible so they can attract new business. You have the board, uh, who are concerned with regard to the use of shareholder capital, but they have to put a different hat on when uh, deciding on uh, bonuses. And then there's the statutory actuary who's sort of sat in the middle, uh, who has to consider the Long-Term Insurance Act uh, and the solvency of the fund. Long-Term Insurance Act, uh, he has to be uh, satisfied that there is surplus uh, available to be able to uh, declare the bonuses. So the, the bonus setting fairness of the uh, bonuses, is really a balance between those three different views. Now, the bonus declarations themselves, this to me is the distributive justice, generally it is one rate or multiple rates <coughs> applied to all policies in the group. Now the group may be defined as all policies in a particular fund or in some other way. Um, and the PBFM, as I've spoken about, sets out how bonus rates will be calculated, particularly when the uh, bonus stabilization reserve is large or small, or something in between. Um, so with those two things, uh, I believe that the basis of fairness is in place. However, fairness is a perception. It is not something that can be defined. And you can never satisfy everybody. So sometimes, whatever you do, someone's not going to be happy. So I want to hand over to Paul Trans for him to talk about why he believes that uh, uh, it may not be fair. Good morning, everybody. Um, Paul, thanks very much for giving me a bit of extra time. I was worried if I was going to have enough time to finish my presentation. Um, this is not a debate. Um, people might have thought that this was going to be a full-on debate about uh, Paul saying a smooth bonus business is fair and I'm saying it's not fair. Um, that's, that's not the case. And I also need to, um, to just tell you that um, my comments and my opinions here do not necessarily represent the views of the company on whose boards I sit. Um, so this is not a 
So what I'm, I'm, I'm about to present here, even though it's not, as I say, not a decision that as soon as one does business is fair or unfair, even, even uh, the, the stuff I am going to talk about is, is not something that is currently being discussed at all mutual. Not to say it won't be, but it's currently not the subject of discussion. Not as far as I know, anyway. So, cross-subsidy is, I think, as we all accept, an in inevitable consequence of, of smoothing. The only way smoothing can work, and that is quite clearly made in that paper that was sent for pre-reading, is by withholding um, from a current um, body of policyholders or current cohort in good time so that you can use that uh, surplus, if you like, of the bonus stabilization reserve to subsidize bonuses in bad times. And to the extent that those policyholders aren't the same people, you have cross-subsidy. But, could the, but my question is, could the amount of cross-subsidy underlying a particular system of smoothing be deemed to be unfair? That's what I want to like, I'd like to share with you my, my very initial and very crude attempts to try and, and, and analyze that. So let us define a measure of cross-subsidy as the percentage of an individual policyholder or cohort of policyholders' asset share that is left behind and transferred to a future generation. If that percentage is too high in relation to the benefits of smoothing, then we could say that that particular smooth bonus system is treating policyholders unfairly. And while we, you know, the time is limited, I do want to just make one point that I think smoothing is sometimes, uh, the benefit of smoothing sometimes made out to be greater than it really is. For example, um, one looks at the individual bonus rates declared from year to year compared to the earned, the earned rates, and you think, wow, look how much smoothing has happened. You know, you've earned 42% and you declare 20. But the reality is that the cumulative investment return that you earn or get declared compared to the cumulative investment return that was earned on the assets is the real element of smoothing. And, uh, and that is obviously, other than for one-year policy, uh, that will be a lot less than, say, the 40% versus 20% comparison. And also, you know, that, um, smoothing is argue that when you die, you know, you don't want your, your payout to be uh, suddenly decreased because uh, the market dipped. I think if most people, if, if, if policyholders are dependent on the return on their savings for their death benefit, I think they haven't been uh, given good, decent advice because they really should have a, a supplementary death benefit or disability benefit on top of it, which will far outweigh their element of, of cross-subsidy. But uh, so we, we're looking here really at, uh, I'm, I'm going to ignore deaths and, and disabilities and look here at, at the two main um, uh, terminations, which is those people that get to the end of the road, maturities, and then those people who have to surrender along the way. So in the following slides, as I said on this, um, on this initial slide, we're going to try and see the, the level of cross subsidy. So what we've, what we've done here is built a little model office, a very simple model office, as, as described in the, in the slide. The smoothing bonus, formula is the one that is currently uh, applied to Old Mutual's biggest open smooth bonus fund, it's called the AGP, and it is a non-discretionary smoothing formula. It has, it, it has discretion only in extreme events, but outside those extreme events, it is formula-driven. Basically, it looks prospective at what you could expect to earn over the long run, and then adjust the actual um, bonus factor by the state of the BSR. So the BSR is not looking so great, you reduce it. If the BSR is looking fantastic, you increase it. So it's, it's pretty, um, and in the 35 years that we model, which is actually historical performance since 1979, um, that discretion hasn't had to be applied. 
And uh, the, the, the actual um, investment returns are the same ones that are based in the paper that of 2007, but just extended back to 79 and, and to today's date. So on that, on that, on that projection, you'll see here, and this, uh, remember, it's an open, it's a, it's a fund that started from zero. It had new business growing at 10% effectively, premiums increased by 10%, and then it stopped um, after 20 years, and then, it, sorry, after 15 years, and then the policies ran off. So you see here a, a, a fund that starts at zero and then ends at zero, and what happens along the way. The, uh, the, the blue line is the market value, the red line is the, um, liability, which is actually the book value, and then the green line is, on, with the scale on the right, is the, the percentage of the BSR is the percentage of the, of the assets. This is just the um, actual smooth bonus rates declared versus the market return. So you see here this, this big element of apparent smoothing. Now what happened to those 15 cohorts of new business. So these dots, these various things, I hope they're clear on the screen, uh, represent what the maturing policyholders got as a payout relative to the, the underlying market value of the investments that were allocated to them. So the, 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 what the UK call the asset share basis. And you'll see there that there's been quite a lot of cross-subsidy. So from Policyholders in 1999 getting only 80% of their market value to a policyholder in 2008 getting 125, 127% of market value. I would define that to be quite an extreme level of smoothing. If the, pre the premise was that you went into this policy because you actually wanted to invest in a balanced fund and you wanted the volatility removed. And that's the only kind of if you like, a reason why, uh, that's the only kind of policy or the argument you could use to use this kind of measure of unfairness or unfairness. If the policy or the bought this policy because he wanted a better return and fixed interest in the, in, the, in the bank account with the hope of beating inflation, I reckon this, as we all know, our, our smooth bonus products uh, that we have over these years have performed wonderfully well. They've, they've outperformed inflation. And that policyholder would not have any idea that's how it works. He wouldn't have a clue that, that you know, there's a cross-subsidy element. So we're talking about a policyholder who chose a balanced fund with smoothing. We've ignored guarantees as well because that's a different issue. The guarantees are, are a, a part and parcel of smooth owners versus by and large, but, uh, but that's a different uh, argument. This is done on a termination rate of zero, so this assumes all policyholders reach maturity. What happens if we assume there is a 5% per annum termination rate? Now, this brings into interest that you apply a market value adjuster, as we know from the paper and as we probably most of us know, that quite a lot of smooth bonus funds and businesses apply market value adjustments when the BSR is, is, uh, is negative. And typically, the, the surrender value will be the lower of the book value, i.e. what you've been declared, and the market value. So it's an asymmetrical uh, market value adjuster. And in this case, it's done on individual policy level. So that, uh, in, this, in this system, if you like, for every policy holder, an individual asset share is maintained, and at, uh, when he surrenders, that, it's the lower of that individual asset share versus um, uh, and, and the uh, book value. You'll see here already with only a 5% termination rate that there's been 
a cross-subsidy between terminating policyholders and, and, and maturing ones. So this represents, again, remember, this is the maturing policyholders only. And you'll see there that the, the guy in 2008, or the code in 2008, is already now up to about 129%. And if we look at the 10% termination rate, it goes up. So we'll see here cross-subsidies, not only from maturing generations, but also from surrendering policyholders to um, maturing policyholders. What, what you could do, well, let's, let's be a bit fair on surrender values, and let's only apply the market value adjuster if the uh, BSR is uh, funded level is less than 95%, and then apply it only uh, at the difference between it and 95 and you'll see it makes a marginal, a marginal difference. And then just to let you, I've got too many slides, you'll have to flip through them very quickly, but the graph um, that you see is the surrendering, what each uh, surrendering policyholder gets as a percentage of their asset value, and you'll see here with the MVA done on an individual policy basis, they never get more than 100% by definition. And you'll see there it goes all the way through the various cohorts. This is fun. And then finally, I, I did a, 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 a comparison of what it, the, the total, well, each cohort and then the total um, uh, of the terminating policyholders got as a percentage of the market share versus um, the maturing ones. And you'll see there's quite a, an un, unexpected result. So on average, the surrendering policyholders still got 98% of their market value. And the maturing ones got in total 111. Now you might think initially, which I thought when I first saw this, but hang on, these things don't add up. You expect what the shortfall in the terminating ones should equal the, the, the surplus in the other ones. But of course, when the guy leaves something behind, that something that's left behind grows as well. And with this incredible bull market run we've had, that then means that it's worth more when the maturing policyholders get it. Okay. And then what is interesting is that uh, at Old Mutual in the individual policy uh, series, um, they don't apply market values at the individual policy level, they apply it to the fund as a whole. And that was the way it was described in the paper. So you look at the whole fund and, and you apply that market value adjustment. And we did that. And then you'll see, I'm comparing here, that one is on the individual policy basis and the next one is on fund level. Now the earlier cohorts, it makes no difference, but if I flip very quickly to to the ones towards the end, you'll see here that here is a cohort where in fact the guys who surrendered the year before maturity actually even got a higher percentage of their market value than the maturities. But of course, it compares with the individual policy basis. Um, now, you would then therefore expect that on that basis, um, sorry, the element of cross subsidy is reduced a bit. And you'll see there that the surrendering ones actually get 101% on in total or average and the uh, maturities get slightly less. So I think this, this exercise is, what I'm trying to start here is that can we define a, a measure of cross-subsidy? And can we apply that measure of cross-subsidy when we, for example, design a smooth bonus system or when we uh, try and review a smoothing system looking at um, you know, your discretion or, or, or the, the treatment of uh, surrendering policyholders? And can you then get some sort of measure um, of cross-subsidy and then use that measure as one of the inputs to your decision as to whether that smoothing system is, 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 could be made more fair or less fair. And I'll leave that as a challenge for the actuarial profession to take forward. I'm not into the, I don't do um, research and, and papers anymore. This is a very crude um, uh, model. It, its outcomes is it's a function of three things. One is the smoothing formula and the surrender value formula. The second one is actually the economic scenario that we've gone through, including the, the good bull run. And the third one is that this is a fund that's, that grew and then closed. 
and other funds are in different stage, stages of their, if you like, of their life cycle will, will show different things. And one could, of course, do stochastic projections of investment returns to see how things would behave in different scenarios. Thank you. Right, thank you very much to the two Pauls. Let's give them a round of applause. They have gratefully left us with uh, ample time for discussion and questions now. So I really would uh, appreciate if uh, someone would break the ice and be the first one to make a comment or to ask a question. Thank you, Gary. Um, Paul, and Paul, thank you very much for the useful discussion so far. I would like to actually ask your comments around something that has not been discussed this morning. Uh, on the one side, we started with a philosophical discussion around what is fairness, on the other side, a very technical piece of modeling. But the, the aspect that's very interesting for me is more the pragmatic one of understanding the, the whole influence of behavioral finance on investment decision-making in South African context in particular. Um, so what I would like to understand is your views on the potential benefit of smoothing to protect people against those um, often irrational investment behavior of selling when the market is at its lowest point and, and, and buying when it's at its highest point. There's been some studies done where it shows that you know, over time, I think the S&P 500 delivered over a 30-year period a certain amount of returns, but the actual return earned, money-weighted return earned by investors was significantly lower, and that is because of that irrational behavior and to what extent smoothing can actually protect um, against that. And in particular in the South African context, um, the question that I have is if we consider the, the risk appetite of the large majority of investors in South Africa, what we're doing here is we're comparing smoothing against a corresponding very aggressive unit-linked portfolio. And my question is, is that really um, the investment options on the table for people to choose between? And should we not rather compare smoothing to the alternative that a conservative investor would go into? And therefore, just your comments around the ability of smoothing to actually allow investors to take more risk effectively and earn higher returns over the long term. Thank you. And Nikki, I'll be going to take a mic to them. That might be the, thank you, the easiest. If there are any com uh, replies that you want to give now. Uh, yes, <coughs> thank you for that. Um, I think it's a very interesting question. Um, I think in a South African context, I think there are a lot of investors who actually need this type of product. Uh, you know, the, what's the alternative? If, if you cannot accept downside on your investments, then really the only alternative is a bank account or cash type investment, which I think we all know is actually a negative investment when you take out inflation. So I believe that these type of policies do have a place in, in South African society. Now, you know, what they should achieve, I think, is what is key to me is what, how they are sold and how they are described to the investors at the time of, of sale. Because it's all about expectations at the end of the day. If you expect something and it's achieved, then you're happy with the product. Uh, if your expectations are something different and, you don't, uh, and they're not uh, achieved, then you're unhappy with the product, and that has an implication as far as the uh, industry is concerned. As far as the um, buy at high and sell at low, uh, that seems to me uh, to be a, uh, 
something that happens all the time. I don't know how you stop that. Um, I used to call it the lemming principle. Um, that's what people do. Uh, because they don't have patience and they're not prepared to um, invest for the long term, which I think is what our uh, industry is about. Yes, I'm, I, I sort of echo Paul's things. I, I do believe, um, and if, I can't bring it back, but that the slide in there where it looks at the actual declared rates versus the earned rates, I think that is what scares people off linked business. As I said, the, re the real element of smoothing is actually the level of BSR, if you like. Um, but I think when the markets have the volatility they have shown, I think that's when people would be scared of going into linked uh, balance funds. Because it's not that aggressive. I mean, you know, we still only got two-thirds equity. Aggressive is 100% equity and derivatives and other stuff. But anyway, that's a personal view. Um, so, so I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think Smooth Bonus is a very, very valuable product. Uh, both for individual and pension funds, etc. But I think we mustn't, as actuaries and as managers of these funds, we mustn't forget the fact that if you really believe that these returns are never going to be removed and, they, and, and whatever, you've got to be very careful. So we haven't discussed vesting and non-vesting bonuses, but it's a crucial aspect. Just before the, the meeting, uh, we had a discussion about when um, a, a life company had to remove non-vesting bonus. And even though that was considered to be the fairest option, it basically killed that business. And I think, you know, that, that, that we mustn't forget that, that we could try and argue that smooth bonus business is fair and we have to have these non-vesting and re removal of non-vesting rules as the only way we can run it. Remember, it is fairness in the, is in the eyes of the beholder. And, and if you kill the system, have you, done, have you done society any good? So we've got to think very carefully about what I call these extreme, extreme events, but without becoming too conservative. Because if we become too conservative, I think we have too much cross-subsidy. It's a, it's a fine balance, and maybe the actuaries are sort of the only people who can, can um, make that fine decision. Thank you. Um, some more questions or comments from the floor, please. Uh, Paul, uh, oh, both Pauls, maybe just a question for you. The, uh, it's quite interesting to also compare this to some of the, the international uh, experiences and systems we have. and. Uh, I mean, we know sort of the UK have announced that they're going to uh, sort of implement a defined ambition approach or add it to the DB and the DC. And defined ambition at its core is really just also, you know, principles of intergenerational uh, smoothing. Um, and we know obviously around CDCs in the, in the Netherlands, et cetera, again, very much based on this and sort of quite widely acknowledged as some of the best systems in the world. I just uh, sort of appreciate some of your views uh, and thoughts around you know, this principle of, of equity and also, you know, what your views around how maybe this would have been perceived in, in those parts of the world and those other systems. We, again, I know specifically around defined ambition, they had a lot of work and a lot of thought and debate around this, this very issue. Um, yeah, thanks. Just for those who don't know where the CDC is, it's not the Commonwealth Development Corporation, it's collective defined contribution. Um, and... Uh, uh, it, it, it was interesting, I, as, as you heard from my, my little brief biography, I actually worked in Holland, as did some of the other members in the, uh, in the audience, um, over a period where there was a lot of debate about uh, how the, the, pension fund in, the pension fund system should work in the, in the, in the, in, in the Netherlands. But one thing one mustn't uh, forget, that, that, that that society's got an enormous value of solidarity. Um, it believes in cross-generational subsidies anyway, as a principle. Partly because of its history, um, 
You know, you build dikes, not for this generation, you build dikes for future generations, and you put your finger in dikes for saving the world. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think we mustn't try and see what seems to be working in the Netherlands as necessary being transportable to countries where you don't have this ethics of solidarity and where it's, I want my share and I want more than my share. And I think this is the challenge we have uh, when we apply it to other countries. And I'm, I'm not saying South Africa is unique in this. I think other countries have had the same problem. And I believe that uh, the CDC is, is, or defined ambition is having a bit of a challenge in the UK on issues around cross-generational subsidies. So I think we need to persuade people that leaving something behind for future generations is a good thing to do. Otherwise, we're going to battle with this concept. Thank you. Any further comments, questions? Never on this side. Thanks, Nikki. Hi, I'm Paul Trains. Uh, um, would you say that the um, what we saw here, where, where the later generations got the benefits of the smoothing, is something that you could generalise uh, across smooth bonus funds, or do you think it's more a function of the particular data set that we've that we are examining? Um, because if if it in general does benefit later um, generations, then I suppose the the likelihood that the fund is going to be closed or the rate at which smooth bonus funds are closed would influence the, the amount of fairness that's in the system. Lindsay, I, I did mention in, in, in closing that, in fact, this particular pattern of, you know, what you see here on the slide, what, what we saw a minute ago, um, is... is, is a result of two things. The actual financial scenario we, we modeled, if you like, was the actual history, but it's only one of the possible many scenarios we could have had. And secondly, the, uh, the, the actual fund, the state of the fund. Um, by and large, I think your, your equity problems become, or inequity problems become more challenging when the fund starts running down. And so, you know, one of the first things that a company such as Old Mutual, but other bigger companies with lots of, if you like, legacy smooth bonus funds, the first thing they should be considering is, is merging them. Uh, how can you merge them without uh, massive cross-generation inequity in terms of one BSR is bigger than the other, whatever. Um, and I, I think if you look at the UK's experience, you know, their with profit business has basically been a closed fund since, I don't know, for 15 years or something. And the challenge of, of, of making sure that fairness is maintained there. Uh, I think a lot of their funds have actually become non-profit. They've invested in fixed interest and there's almost no equity exposure and therefore fewer problems in deciding. So damn unfair, you thought you were going to get a, an inflation-beating investment and you ended up without one. But, so, so I think, you know, had we taken a different scenario or had we actually done this ending at a different, like maybe 10 years ago, uh, it would have looked different. Yeah. I, I believe that this is an important question to be uh, thought about. You know, as Paul said, uh, where you end up, uh, where we've been in a bull market for the last 20 years, almost continuously, gives you a particular result. If you, let's say, uh, move one year further on, and let's say we've had a 30% reduction in the market, what does the result look like there? 
So what are you trying to do in managing these with-profit funds? You know, complacency says you declare out your bonuses, uh, or sorry, you declare out your fund so that you keep a relatively small BSR, but then you have a 30% reduction in uh, market values, and then you find yourself in a very difficult situation in managing these funds. So it becomes a balance between uh, keeping too much back and being treat, uh, seen as being unfair, and putting yourself in a situation where the fund is going to be in a uh, negative solvency position, which then puts the whole business of the life company at risk, as we've seen with a couple of examples in the last 20 years. Uh, so the downside can perhaps be far worse than the of a, a negative position in a BSR than uh, holding stuff back, holding money back, and uh, not declaring out and being seen as being slightly unfair to some policyholders. Um, certainly, my personal view and my personal way in which I try to run funds was to be on the conservative side, because that seemed to me to be a safer option uh, in case of a downside. I could be criticised for not being generous enough, and in hindsight, one could say that yeah, probably wasn't. But um, I much prefer to be in a position where my successor is not in a, a position where he's got to uh, do drastic actions in order to bring the solvency of a position of a fund back. And as Paul said, I do feel that there is within the PPFM an investment mandate. It says what we are trying to achieve through the investment in this fund. And it is very difficult to keep, let's say, a high equity content when you've got a declining fund and it's coming towards the end of its, its term. Uh, so to be able to maintain that investment mandate in a time when the fund is in decline can be very challenging. Yeah, I was just trying to emphasize that the, the model that I've used has been totally non-discretionary. Uh, this is a formula-driven thing. So, you know, you could argue that this is not a result of the, the actuary or the, the, you know, the board actually being too conservative in the declarations. This is a preconceived smoothing formula. In other words, at the time it was decided upon, there were some views about what this would look like. And, and, and you know, as I said, maybe one would at that stage do some stochastic testing as to see what would this formula look like in certain, in certain um, conditions. You might still come up with exactly the same formula, but at least you're aware of the possible challenges you might have. Thank you. Another one in the middle. Nikki. Coming from, coming from the back. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, I'd like maybe to move it back a little bit to the more philosophical end of the, the discussion. Um, an observation on the data sets, it might be interesting to redo this exercise using data from the Nikkei in Japan over this period. Uh, and that's, that's a big issue when you, when you look at smoothing. But if we come back to the more philosophical one, you know, I've seen this issue debated many times in many actuarial meetings. But to me, it's ultimately buyer beware. You have the ability to buy the market-linked product. Therefore, you make a choice. Do you want to go with the roller coaster or do you want to take the smooth? And I wonder if as a profession we've spent enough time educating the advisors. So I don't think this is about us. It's actually about the advisors who put customers in here. And again, coming back to the peace of mind comment, 
Uh, I don't think we can underestimate the damage that people do to themselves, even in balanced funds, switching into defensive funds after a market crash. Um, so I, I think, and then the other thing at a philosophical level, this is, these products are uh, the fruits of the mutual era. You know, we've been doing this for 200 years. Um, I, I think society makes a mistake to move too far away from that mutual concept, because at a societal level, there's far more value in the, in the smoothing outcome than in the individual. And again, I think the people in Japan might appreciate that a bit more. I think it's a very valid point that you make. Um, I learned in, in, in my job, don't underestimate the customer. He actually understands more than we think he does. Uh, so, I, I think let the buyer beware. Uh, it's dangerous for us as a, uh, a profession and as uh, in the life assurance to treat customers or, or think that way. Um, whilst I, I, I'm sympathetic to it, uh, I think society has moved to a position where, as we're seeing very much in the banking uh, situation in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, where society is saying, no, we're not prepared to accept that. So I think we as a society and life assurance as an industry needs to be aware, beware of that. Not be aware, beware of saying, well, the customer's, um, he's got to be, it's his uh, risk he's taken on. Um, you know, it's nothing to do with us. I don't think in today's society that uh, that is an appropriate uh, way to thought. No, I agree. Um, I'm afraid um, TCF and, and uh, RDR and all this already shown that um, buyers don't have to be aware. Um, I just want to come back to the other point. You know, the underlying assumption about smooth bonus business is that you need to invest in equities to get inflation-beating returns. And the point of what you, the end game of both a, a, a unit thing managed, port, a managed portfolio or a smooth bonus one that invests in the same underlying um, assets is that equities outperform inflation. If you have a scenario where over a long period of time that doesn't happen, whether you're in market or smooth bonus, you're not going to produce uh, those inflation beating returns. And, and coming back, I would guess um, that if, um, if there had been smooth bonus business in Japan, that would have died um, long ago. Uh, you know, the companies would have gone bankrupt or uh, you know, insolvent, or they would have had to close those and do, do exactly what they did in the UK. So I, I think we must realize that smoothing is not, it's not you wouldn't smooth a fixed interest uh, portfolio. You wouldn't smooth a money market portfolio. You would only smooth a portfolio that contains big chunks of equity. And that was the old mutual principles years ago. It was, initially it was to, to smooth mortality profits and then later on from the 50s onwards it became, uh, the, the investment performance smoothing became more, more important. Um, so yeah, I think we mustn't forget that. Thank you, Marius Stradom. Um, I have a comment and also a question. Firstly, it's now been about 20 years where there's been a distinct trend to move risk uh, away from life offices towards uh, the individuals themselves, especially on the investment uh, side, fewer guaranteed products, uh, many companies, less exposure to smooth bonus, etc. Um, 
And this has been not a problem for the client base because we've seen a, a distinct bull market during the period. However, it hasn't been particularly good for the life insurance industry, which has lost a lot of market share to alternative forms of investment. Um, hence, I, I believe these kind of products are very important um, in an environment where markets are not consistently rising. Um, they'll become much more valuable to the client base, but I also believe they're very important to the industry um, and the industry's ability to remain important in the uh, investment side of the, the space. Then secondly, um, it would be interesting to compare uh, how structured products would fare uh, compared to smooth bonus products where in essence the, the client uh, pays a, a fee uh, every year for the protection against downsides in markets. Um, so it would be interesting to see what the, uh, the, the intergenera intergenerational position looks like in, that, uh, in that, those kind of products. Thanks, Marius. Um, yeah, what I think uh, is, is what I like about these sort of structured products, you know, we're using um, derivative instruments to, 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 or whatever methodology, is that you're paying the market price for that today. The market price is what the market demands today. It doesn't, you're not sure whether that market price at the end of the road was fair or not. Uh, but it, you can say it's the market price. Uh, and, and just like in a linked fund, you can say, I don't, I don't you know, the fact that NASPERS goes from 100 to 1,000, in five years, um, you know, we're just accepting that. If some actuary had to decide a bonus rate on his view of NUSPERS, he would have said, this thing is only worth 200. I'm ignoring the fact that it's one up to 1,000. That's <laughs> the way they actually used to do it in the old days. Um, so so I, I, I think that what I like about these market structure products is that you don't have to worry about whether the price you were charged for it was fair. But at the end of the road, if you look at the whole, say in my case, uh, if you were to compare the two, would the outcome be any better under structured products than this one? I, I reckon probably not. I think the market's probably inefficient in these products and, and, and charges too much for, their, for the cost. Uh, <coughs> nice to see you again, Marius. Um, I, I'll just make one other point, uh, and that is uh, credit risk on uh, the underlying instruments. It concerns me that we have all these derivative instruments out there. Something's going to go wrong at one point at some point. I don't know when it is, uh, but it worries me that there's going to be something go wrong, and when it does go wrong, it's going to be a disaster. Yep, time for one more comment or question. Okay, we've got two up front here. <laughs> right in the front. Do you mind, Gary? Can I go? Okay, mine's, mine's short. So, it's sort of touching on policyholder expectations, although I guess it's more audience expectations. And Paul Trains, I was expecting you possibly to come and show us that smoothing is unfair. And I'm not sure whether you set out to do that or not, but for me, you've showed to me it's very fair. Um, I, I, I wouldn't personally, and maybe this is just an old actuary speaking, but um, I wouldn't have compared the smooth bonus against the market-linked ratio as a measure of fairness the fact that your graph wobbled around all over the place, to me, said that this is actually doing what it should do, which is it's taking out that market volatility. So for me, the measure of fairness is going from one policy cohort to the next, from year to year on a calendar year basis, are the returns fairly smooth? You don't get a sudden drop off of one cohort against another. And I assume, by definition, those cohorts would go up by roughly 10% each year because they're, everyone, they're paying 10% more premiums. 
So for me, that actually looks pretty smooth, and I would have thought, job done. Um, so maybe congratulations to the Garys. Um, uh, no. <laughs> okay, that was my comment. I just had a, a comment. You alluded to TCF earlier. Um, do you think the PPFM is enough, or do you think more needs to be done in terms of either educating policyholders or just communicating better to policyholders in terms of intergenerational smoothing? I, I had um, in my initial paper I was going to address that, but I was told by Gary only had 10 minutes, so we cut it out. Um, I did, I did refer in my earlier talk that you've got to almost consider these policy products from two different policyholders' points of view. So the first one I said was somebody who just wants better than uh, cash in the bank and hopefully um, beating or matching inflation. Uh, and I reckon these policies have performed brilliantly. And all you need to then make sure is that the advisor that hadn't cast too great expectations of you're going to beat inflation by 3% kind of story. The other kind of person, as I said, is the one who chooses to go in a balanced fund, but he wants some sort of volatility removed. And then I think you probably would have to explain this cross-subsidy thing to him, and I don't know how you would do it at the point of sale. But I think you're right. I think because otherwise, if, if what we read in the paper, in, in the 2007 paper, in the appendix, it talked about developments in the UK of, of the, you know, the profit business there, and there was a lot of challenge of the extent of the cross-subsidy. Okay, it was a declining thing. There was probably more held back than, than proof, you know, what necessary because it was a declining um, fund. But, uh, but I think that they were obviously their policyholders and or advisors who felt that uh, outcome five hadn't been met. And, and, but how you, I think the PFM is complicated, but you need to find an easy way of explaining it in two or three paragraphs and, and you must make sure your advisors pointed out to the, the customers. All right, if I can conclude, I think, oh, look, I'll go back to the topic of the, of the discussion. It was, is intergenerational smoothing fair? And I think to some extent maybe that was the wrong question because I think the reality is with any insurance product, and that includes a smooth bonus product, there will always be a degree of cross-subsidy. That's the nature of insurance. I think the question should have been how much intergenerational smoothing is fair and at what point does it become unfair? I think what we've heard from Paul Lancaster is that he says that because the basis is specified in a PPFM and you're following that, therefore it's fair. And what Paul Trans tried to do is to say if we take a practical and specific example and look at the outcome, can you conclude from that outcome whether it's fair or not? Um, and I guess what Paul has done is he probably has Paul um, Trans has provided us with another method that could be used to retrospectively um, evaluate smooth bonus products to say, has the outcome been one where the extent of the cross-subsidy would be regarded as fair or, or, or yeah, appropriate or excessive? Um, if we go back to the original paper that was distributed um, many years ago and then again for this one, now, that paper you know, covers the topic of smoothing as well from page 18 onwards, and it does effectively say that the issue is you know, how much smoothing and at what point does it become unfair. I guess the other criteria that could be used to evaluate whether you think the smoothing is excessive is the range for the bonus smoothing reserve. Uh, so if it goes between minus 20% and plus 50%, the view would be that it's probably excessive. 
And I just, in closing, just wanted to ask the two of you whether you had any particular views on the ra an, an acceptable range for the bonus smoothing reserve um, that you would think, if it's within that range, I think it's fair. If it's beyond that range, I think it could be excessive. Um, I suppose my, my answer is qualified on this. It depends what the investment philosophy under the fund is. Obviously, a more aggressive investment philosophy would require a bigger range uh, to allow for the volatility of the returns. Um, I, I think if you look at the PPFMs uh, on the major companies, most of them address this through saying that if the uh, BSR is greater than a particular amount, generally around about 20 to 30%, then the excess will be uh, distributed immediately or over a very short period. Um, so a lot, of the, a lot of the companies already say that. And if it goes below a particular level, generally about uh, 90% or 95%, then there's an action that takes place immediately for those as well. So most companies already have that band. Uh, by definition, because bonuses are only declared once a year, then uh, you will have situations where BSRs can get to outrageous levels, either positive or negative. Um, and can only be really addressed at a bonus declaration date. Um, but, so, what is fair? I don't think it's something that can be put into uh, to numbers with it on a general basis without looking at the particular funds themselves and the position that they're in. I think uh, that begs the question of how much smoothing do the policyholders want. So, if I imagine you can, could call 100,000 policyholders together to, to come to a decision. Um, I, you know, I would say the first question you ask is, how much smoothing do you expect out of this fund? Are you happy to have a 20% reduction in, in your values just before you mature? Or are you happy to have 40% um, or are you happy to only have 10%? And as a result, if you could get a consensus view on that or an average view or something, then, you, then by definition that tells you what, what your BSRs could be. The, the two are completely related. So. All right, so once again, can we thank the two Pauls as well as all of those who contributed from the floor.